Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's just uh, me by myself today. Baron is still in Sweden. I came back from Norway yesterday where we did our previous two podcast two weeks ago. We, we did it there. Baron is in Sweden. I'm not entirely sure what he's doing and I, he should be back in a few days time. We are going to do another podcast in a week's time, bringing you a huge amount of news and also a lot of news from our sponsors, the Scottish Association for Country Sports, because they have been incredibly busy the last few weeks. But more details about that in next week's show, where me and Byron will both uh, be there as well. Now, we have a competition winner, and it was the Surefire Torch that we were giving away, and we asked people to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and people did. And the lucky winner is Mr. ALC2, so M-R-A-L-C2. Thank you very much for your awesome review, and you've uh, won yourself a torch. So if you shoot us an email, and like we do with all of our competitions, you have a month to shoot us an email and uh, collect your prize, and we will send that over to you. The previous two podcasts that we've done, we have collected all the prizes and we're going to announce the winners of them next week because I've only just got back and uh, we're going to do it when Byron's here in the the studio as well. This podcast that we're doing today is a little unusual compared to everything else. We thought we would give everyone a treat and we're going to talk about ourselves for uh, for the whole show. Now we're not going to interview ourselves. What we uh, did a few months ago, we were invited on to the Beyond the Kill FM podcast in the states, and they were talking about our show and trying to find out a bit about ourselves. And we thought, you know what, we've never done a show uh, where you, the listeners, get to learn a little bit about me and Byron. So it'd be a perfect opportunity to uh, use that show and share it with everyone here. So I hope you enjoy that, and you should know a little bit more about myself and uh, Byron at the end of the show. We have a new competition running on this week's show, but you'll have to listen to the end of the show to find out how to enter as uh, as usual. But please enjoy the show. And remember, this show is brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports, and you can find out all of the latest news on their Facebook page. Any of the sponsors that you hear during the the main chunk of this show are all brought to you by Beyond the, the Kill FM, and I encourage everybody to go and check out their podcast as well. They have some fantastic guests on there, and Adam's a great guy, but enjoy the show. This is BeyondTheKill.fm with your host, Adam Yonke, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Mountain Hunting. We were all born to hunt. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. BeyondTheKill.fm is brought to you by Matthews Archery. Since 1992, Matthews has been at the forefront of design, engineering, and innovation in the bow hunting and competitive archery space. Last year, I had the pleasure of shooting the no-cam for the season, and it is, without question, the smoothest drawing, accurate bow I've had the opportunity to lay my hands on. This year, Matthews introduces the latest addition to their lineup, the Halon, their hardest-hitting flagship bow to date. You can find out more about the Halon 
and the full Matthews lineup at matthewsinc.com. BeyondTheKill.fm is also brought to you by the Wild Sheep Foundation. If you're not a member, please consider joining at wildsheepfoundation.org. And if you're already a member, please consider upgrading to a life membership or summit life membership. There are flexible payment options to do so, and I encourage you to consider it. It would be going to a great organization doing great things for wild sheep and wild places across North America. And now, on to the show. On this episode, I'm joined by Byron and Daryl Pace, co-founders of Pace Productions UK and hosts of an incredibly well-done digital series called Into the Wilderness that they self-produce and is freely available on YouTube and, and Vimeo that chronicles their hunting across Scotland. Byron, Daryl, and I discuss the brothers' unique backgrounds, and it is respectively fairly unique as far as what brought them into the hunting media business. And then we dig in on the UK perspective on hunting and conservation. And of course, we talk hunting media and the future of hunting media. Whether it's their stories about growing up in Africa to Scottish deer stalking or even their Scotch recommendations, this is yet another just great show and a really fresh um, perspective, I think, on on hunting in general. I mean, the the laws and regulations that govern hunting in Scotland and across the UK and how that informs their approach to hunting. And then of course, the hunting media business is truly unique. So I hope you enjoy. It was one that I thoroughly enjoyed. And without further ado, I bring you Byron and Daryl Pace of Pace Productions UK. Daryl, Byron, welcome to the show. I'm ecstatic to have you on, on the podcast here. We've been emailing back and forth for months, if not longer, trying to get this sort of locked in. And for those of you that, that haven't seen anything from the Pace Brothers, uh, you know, I sent out an email in one of the last blasts to our audience saying to have a look at, at Into the Wilderness, their wonderful production. But these guys are producing just a phenomenal, phenomenal type of media for the hunting space. And I'm really excited to have them on. So uh, guys, thank you for taking the time. Uh, thank you no, very thanks, much for the invite. Thank you for having us. Yeah. My pleasure. As, as I always do, I want to give you guys a chance to describe a bit of your backgrounds, what brought you to where you are today. You both have, respectively speaking, very interesting backgrounds before the foray into the hunting media business. So I'm not sure who gets rank and who goes first, but you know, the, the floor is yours, boys. Hey, I think Byron. Yeah, Am he, I going he, first he can go first this time. Is, is okay. Byron, are you the older one? Okay. Yes, by three years. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so my, I think really where to start with regard to this. Start I mean, just after high school. Well, no, I'm going to start Go before. just before <laughs> yeah. that, because I mean, we're both familiar story for, for both of us. And I'm sure a lot of people who, you know, start, who, who are hunters, that starts when you're very young. And my dad shot a lot and, and hunted a lot. Both our, our parents are originally from uh, Rhodesia or Zimbabwe as it is now. Um, although we were born in Scotland. And in the early years, I just spent it crawling around after my dad chasing rabbits or whatever else he happened to be hunting. He never really hunted in the way that kind of we do now, where it's sort of an all-encompassing obsession. But it was a big part. It was a big part of our younger lives. And I suppose that's where I got bitten, that and fishing as well. And we probably, I probably did a lot more fishing when I was very young. I mean, I'm talking just able to walk. So that kind of thread all the way through my younger years, and uh, I did a lot of swimming, so did Daryl actually, which I'm sure he'll touch on, uh, from sort of, I don't know, six, seven years old all the way through to leaving high school. And that kind of curtailed my ability to 
spend a vast amount of time hunting fishing although i was always doing it uh, just because we were doing a lot of competitive swimming but having left that and gone to university about the same time i uh, i went to study economics but i also started writing for a hunting magazine uh, here in the uk uh, called sporting rifles which i still write for today and that was a bit of an odd one because i had always growing up i'd been obsessed probably more with fishing and particularly fly fishing for for trout than anything else, even more than hunting. And all I ever wanted to do was just write for a fishing magazine. I thought like that I had made it if I could write for a fishing magazine. <laughs> and that still has never happened to this day. So something, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't even remember why. I wrote this article about selecting the right hunting knife and it was based on just an experience I'd had across a number of people and basically just learning lessons that I'd been taught. And I submitted it to a, a then very new a magazine, Sporting Rifle, and the editor of that at the time, Charlie Jacoby, who people, in fact, your your audience over in America might very well know him for the uh, the face in front of Field Sports Channel, which has a fairly big following. Um, he, he's a gentleman and a very nice guy, and uh, he gave me my break. Mm. And my great amazement, he published this article and then paid me <laughs> many months later, but he did pay <laughs> And from there on, it actually changed editorship a few months after. And they asked me, long story short, they asked me to carry on writing for them. And I've been writing for them ever since. So that's been my kind of in into field sports journalism. At that point, I was just starting to hunt an increasing amount. I'm studying economics at the time at university, which I was kind of good at, but I really wanted to be out fishing or shooting. So after about three years, I actually postponed my last year, my honors year of university, to go and work for a company which manufactured and designed tranquilizing darts, which was based not very far from where my parents live. And I just got immersed in that. Uh, we were out in Africa darting elephants and rhino for all for anti-poaching measures or various different conservation projects. After two years of doing that, I realized, you know what, I kind of put three years of work into economics. I really should finish it. So I went back and finished my honors year, done, dusted, and I pretty much walked straight from university into into sort of high finance, right in the middle of financial crisis in 2008. So most people were just grateful to have a job, and I was too. But I realized within a week of sitting down at my desk, looking at four screen, screens of markets going up and down, or mainly down at that time, <laughs> uh, it's most definitely not for me. But it took me about a year about two years to eventually make a breakaway i did a lot of stuff in between spent a bit of time in india working for the finance company and that was a good experience in itself because it allowed me to adventure a little bit into the himalayas and stuff but i, I remember distinctly i was sitting and i tell this story quite a lot in fact it was it's, it is it is used from time to time by a friend of mine i found out this weekend as an anecdote to people that he's speaking to to tell them to do what they want to do in life and I was sitting at my desk along a row of desks in Edinburgh, where the, my office was, and I was looking around at all the people there. And we had two or three really high up in the company uh, individuals over from the States, actually, from New York. And I was looking at them and I thought, you know, one day if I'm really good at my job and I play my cards right, I could have his job. That's, that's where it goes. And I thought, you know what, I just don't want your life. I do not want that. And I, I literally wrote my resignation letter at my desk and handed it into my manager that day. Wow. Uh, with no real plan. <laughs> <laughs> and that was uh, straight after that. I went into about a year and a bit of just writing, just field sports journalism, just hunting, just fishing. I went to Africa immediately for three months after that, spent some time with my friends 
there and we just hunted hard and played hard. And then I kind of had another attack of conscious, conscience thinking, you know, what, where is this going to go? I was filming a little bit at the time, filming for the shooting show, which is an online channel, a little bit for Field Sports Channel. But I couldn't really see, like, the light at the end of the tunnel. So I went back, went into oil. I was working offshore for a little while. And then most recently, well, actually, as of two weeks ago, completely put the oil behind me. And I'm now doing what we're doing now, which is we're making, you know, hunting films in a way that, we feel the message is coming out the way that we think it should be presented to the, the wider audience, not just specifically for people who in, enjoy hunting. And well, we've been doing that since August last year, but I've just completely, this is now completely my life. Daryl's been doing it since, since August. And that's pretty much how I got to where I am now. Long-winded story. <laughs> no, and, and, but a good one and, and filled with well stuff we may just have to circle back on. And then what I will add, to that is when you say trying to produce a message that reaches beyond the core of the hunting industry or the hunting audience, I would add that you are doing doing so successfully. I was very, very, very impressed with what I am very impressed with what you guys have produced and excited to see where you take it. And we need, and this is something we'll get into later in this episode without question, but I, I would even put it as strongly as we need more content media like you guys produce so my, my hats off to to you both for for committing to that really i appreciate that adam thank you all right joe you're up over to me well i mean i started pretty much the same as barn i mean going through our childhood hunting and i have when i was growing up i wasn't quite as into hunting as barn i love doing it and i love shooting but I was kind of more of a, a backseat passenger. So I would more than happy go out and just watch. So that was kind of what I like to do. And the same with fishing. I, I love fishing as well. I mean, we had a river right next to my parents' house. And we, when the summer holidays came, me and Byron literally would just disappear and as young boys. And we would just spend the days at the river uh, catching little trout on, on ticky spinners and, and worms and and all sorts of things like that. And like Byron said, you know, when, when we got to high school, our life kind of got immersed in sport, swimming, education. And for me, the hunting kind of took a back seat, though I still loved it, loved the outdoors and everything like that. And Byron was filming for the, the shooting show and so on. And, you know, I, I would help out when I could. And then when I was just way to leave high school, I thought to myself, there isn't a job out there that I would like to do whatsoever. And I had recently got into scuba diving. And this was when I was about 16, 15 or 16, I got into scuba diving. And I was like, I love this. This is like the best thing since sliced bread. But can I do this as, as a job? And I looked out there and yeah, you can go teach diving abroad, but as a, a young, you know, 16, 17 year old way to leave high school, is my parents going to let me, you know, go to the Caribbean and teach <laughs> diving in a dive shack somewhere? Probably not. <laughs> They're probably not going to like that idea. So what I did was I, I negotiated with them and said, can I do some work experience in a, a diving shop? 
And they said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So every Friday when I was meant to be at school and the school agreed with it as well, that I could go and do work experience because this is what I wanted to do. And the, the thing, the, the thing what happened was that our neighbor was actually the a chief petty officer in the Royal Navy and a recruitment officer. And he was the one that gave me the lift to Aberdeen every day. Lo and behold, six months later, I am now signed up to the Royal Navy <laughs> as a, a mine clearance diver. <laughs> because why not? That's the next best option. Of course. You, you, so, yeah. So, you know, I left high school and I went straight into the, the Navy as a mine clearance diver. And to be honest, I didn't fully understand what it was until I joined. You know, there's a lot of selection processes that go on. And I knew how hard it was physically because it is without a doubt the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And you go through basic training. Basic training was, you know, that was a breeze pretty much. As long as you could iron and take orders, it's all. all. <laughs> and then I, I got into dive selection and I don't think I quite realized what I had actually signed up to until I did the first week where there's 38 guys there, all of the age of 25 to 30, I would say. I was 18 years old. I was one of the youngest recruits that they had ever put through. Wow. And at the end of day one, there was only 10 people left. Then at the end of that week, there was four of us left. And I just thought to myself, I've just signed myself up to hell. <laughs> I literally have. I've just signed myself up to hell. What have I done? And I kept asking myself, what have I actually done? And I did this to myself. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I did that. And somehow, through just perseverance and, I don't know, being incredibly stupid or something like that, I made it through the year-long training and selection. At this point, I didn't quite realize until halfway through how much bomb disposal I would be doing. <laughs> and that is like 50% of the job. I, I was never told that when I was recruited. <laughs> despite, despite the first two words being mine clearance in the title. Yeah, well, the, although the words say that... <laughs> Recruitment officer's mouth says something else. Ah, I see, I see. Yeah, the title may say mine clearance diver, but all they hear from, they tell you is, yeah, sunbathing on a beach. Right, right, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Anyway, I signed up and yeah, so I, I, I was thrust out into my first deployment probably within about two months of finishing my training. And uh, My first deployment I did out in the Baltic Sea and that was basically seven months of drinking and getting rid of World War II ordnance. We just sailed around the whole of Europe just blowing stuff up and yeah, drinking. drinking. That's, basically, wow. that's basically what we did. So did they, did they include that in the recruitment speech? Because that would also <laughs> sound pretty damn uh, cool to a young teenager. Well, no, they didn't. And, you know, I guess that's what the perks of the job are. Right. And you learn them when, when you get there. But, you know, there's a downside because after that deployment, after a few months home, I was then sent out to the Middle East for another seven or eight months. And that was just the most miserable, probably one of the most miserable times of my life. Mm. And, you know, we were doing all sorts of things. We were, you know, we were looking for mines. I was doing anti-piracy. I was doing some other EOD stuff on land in Kuwait and, and other less desirable places. And at the end of that deployment, I really thought about my life. You know, I spent a lot of time at sea. By the end of it, I'd actually spent three years in total, not all the time at sea, but on a ship. And I thought, you know, this isn't what I want to do. But luckily at that moment in time, I the way it works in our military is that once you spend that length of time on a ship and you reach kind of the next rank up as a diver, you then go on land. I was then based in Glasgow in Scotland on a, a land-based unit doing EOD and IED covering the whole of Scotland. And 
I have to say that when I went joined that team, the one great thing about it is I saw more of Scotland on that team than I've ever done in my life. Like all the little islands on the west coast of Scotland, because there's so much old ordnance that, that washes up on the beaches. And incidentally, <laughs> we got called up to um, a piece of ordnance that uh, washed up on a beach on the Isle of Skye. Was it, Byron? Yeah, it was Isle of Skye. Yeah, Isle of Skye. And so we're there. We have blue lights all the way. We've got police escort through Sky, and we arrive. And who's standing on the field and the beach? It's my brother, and he'd been hunting there the day before, and they were still there. Just by pure coincidence that we, we end up in the same place at the same time, and I let Byron uh, press the button, because it is a button, <laughs> press the button. Blow, blow up the, the ordinance. We'd literally, myself and uh, a good friend of ours, Scott McKenzie, um, he's one of the he's the head stalker of the only sporting estate left in Sky, and we had been uh, hunting foxes for the Crofts up there the night before, and we'd actually shot one from the top of the little mound that was above the beach where this piece of ordnance was. Uh, I ended up getting the chance to blow up the following day, so that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So I did my time there and eventually I got to the point where I knew that I had to, you know, I was progressing in my career and I was going to move up the next rank. Now, normally that would be a great thing, but unfortunately in the Navy, it meant going back to sea and potentially for another three years. And I just didn't have that in me. And I decided, you know what, because I'm a fully qualified commercial diver at the same time. That's the, the one good thing that the um, I got out of it. I'm going to leave and I'm going to become a commercial diver offshore. So I did that and I left straight to Australia. And I spent a whole year out there. This was a year ago now. Yeah, a, bit, a year and a bit ago now. I spent a year out there commercial diving and I did a bit in New Zealand as well. And I would say working, yeah, working half the time and the rest of the time I was exploring. And after the year, I was like, I want to come home and I'm going to get a job commercial diving in the UK. And literally the January I arrived, the <laughs> oil crisis came and there was no jobs. And right. it really, really made me think, is this actually what I want to do? Because I'm going to be chasing work for the rest of my life, basically. Because commercial diving is one of these odd jobs where you, unless you're one of the very lucky few that has a kind of a permanent job, and there's very few of those, it's, you know, three months work here, six months work there, you, right. you know. And so you're always looking for more work. And I, I just decided, you know what, this isn't actually what I want to do. And so me and Byron, you know, we're just like, well, let's, you know, we enjoy going out together. We enjoy hunting together. We enjoy doing all these things together. Why don't we start filming some of the stuff we're doing? And yeah, let's... But at the time, it was, we also felt that it was about the time, especially here in Scotland, if you kind of ignore the global aspects of defending hunting, but certainly in Scotland and in the UK, yeah. that we there wasn't really a voice or a good output for content that showed the positive messages that never get talked about. That was really the incentive for it starting, and it coincided with a bit, bit of a drive here in Scotland with various different Merlin groups setting up, and it kind of nestled nicely into us starting this, the production company. That's where we've uh, got a lot of our early work. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we started the production company, and we didn't actually film anything for ourselves for the first quite a few months. Mm. We were filming for other people, for other conservation kind of uh, projects that were going on in Scotland, and it just the company started just getting bigger and bigger and we weren't looking for work and i started working for it full time and you know we bought august the third august the third yeah. yeah i started working for it full time and we had all the kit and we're at, we're at the point now like byron said you know he's left his job 
two weeks ago now because we are that busy not only doing films for ourselves but for other people as well 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 and so what i want to get into there guys is you know both come from a a life of of adventure in various capacities and and both made very you know firm decisions on what you wanted from from your lives and we can see the the product of that and in, in in the into the wilderness episodes and you just described obviously the the success you've had on the production side but <laughs> there's there's a bit of a gap there between the okay we're going to do this and now you know what i know as this very high end production series and, and the work that you're doing i mean you you gloss over that like it was just like a snap of the fingers and uh and maybe it was and if it was you know hell yeah I, I, i've got immense idea. respect but but you know to produce like I, and i'm not bsing here at all like what you guys are doing with into the wilderness is uh, of a quality that i think is you know top tier tier one whatever you want to call it in in the industry period i mean globally and so you know that's I and, and some of the people on my team, we've talked about filming for quite some time. And there's a difference between grabbing a GoPro and, and quote unquote, going out and solo hunting and producing what you guys do. So I'm not going to let you gloss over that that transition because, you know, it is impressive what you guys are doing. And how do you go from what sounds like, you know, minimal to maybe no experience filming and production to now? Well, I'd like to take 100% credit for the sort of kind of look and feel of everything. But the one thing that we, when we started doing this, it wasn't to do the Into the Wilderness, which you've been referencing. And we started doing it, that was kind of an ambition. We thought we would love to film something and tell a story the way that we want to tell it. And like we said 15 minutes ago, that was also, could also be applicable to people who weren't hunters who could enjoy it. But when we first started, it was really to make kind of documentary type films that explained various aspects of field sports and hunting. So the first thing that we made, it was released on August the 12th last year, was a film called The Untold Story, Driven Grouse Shooting. Now, driven Grouse Shooting in Scotland, it's one of the very, well, it is the only place that you find red grouse in the world. We have the largest area of heather moorland anywhere on the planet. And it is largely managed and maintained by the large estates with a focus on hunting grouse. And it's a bit under threat here because there's a lot of anti-hunting organizations. We've got a government that doesn't really support hunting. And what they fail to realize is that they're also doing a bit of land grabbing, for want of a better phrase, with <laughs> land reform. That, that's basically what, that's basically what they're doing. What they don't realize is that if you didn't have these big estates with a lot of investment, with a lot of feet on the ground, managing it for hunting purposes... There wouldn't be these moorlands, there wouldn't be the grouse, there wouldn't be the waders, there wouldn't be all the other animals that rely on the fact that they vermin control and that they manage the, the heather moorland. So the first film we made was this, this, this film, The Untold Story Driven Grouse, and it was all the stuff that doesn't get talked about. You know, We have a lot of hunting organizations here. We're lucky to be, in terms of our, our podcast and our series, backed by one of the very good ones. Uh, the Scottish Association of Country Sports, right. who kind of shared our vision or, uh, or we mutually shared each other's vision that the shooting industry, I would say globally, but particularly reflect on the UK, has been very good at patting each other on the back and saying what a great job we're doing. And hey guys, do you know, look at all the, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're protecting, but they've been very, very poor at telling the rest of the world. And that's really where the, where the sort of the, the, the battle is, the, where, where the front is that we need to address to make sure that people are not ignorant to it. It's not necessarily their fault, but we need to present that information. So we may, wanted to make these films to tell 
the story, to tell the people about people's lives, to explain the economic benefits, to explain the, the habitat and the wildlife benefits. And through that, we learned a lot. As I said yeah. earlier, I'd filmed before for the shooting show, but it was a kind of, and not to take anything away from the, the show, but it was of a certain level. It's a weekly show. Right. There's a fairly fast output, and it's a certain style of filming. You film it, you cut it, you put it out, and it's it's great, and people who hunt like to watch it. But it's it's raw. It's, uh, yeah, it's fairly raw. If I could just interject for a second there, Byron, I mean, I think the point... I'm not making clearly, but that is key here is, I mean, you're hitting, I won't say big issue, that's unfair, but you're hitting the nail on the head relative to the historical way hunting media was produced, right? I mean, we talk about the front that is the the battle, as it were, against anti-hunting or just disinterested parties relative to hunting and, and everything that hunting brings to well, various habitats and species. We, as in we in the industry, have done a very poor job of telling those stories, right? I mean, you met, you reference the Scottish uh, Association for Country Sports of being very good at what they do, but b being very poor at telling the stories about what they do, right? And that's, that's you know, if you could summarize hunting media until very recently, that was the norm, right? And so when you, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm very, very interested to hear how you went from, you know, your past, your experience filming in that raw manner, as you referenced it, to you know, doing what you're doing now. So it's, it's one thing to say, we want to tell these stories. That makes a ton of sense. But I mean, you guys are truly, truly producing something that is that is special. Like I, I, I don't say that with any exaggeration or any pandering. It, it really is something that is that is unique and special and we need more of it. And I'm just intrigued by how, you, how, you, how you got there, right? Well, I think what I said earlier, it was a big learning curve. It, it was, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we both sat down at the start and talked about, the filming and what we were going to output yeah and we we agreed that there is going to be no half measures we either do this correctly or we just don't do it and the early stuff that we put out in terms of the documentary stuff it was it was the message was good the filming was okay it wasn't great i look at it now and i think god i would have loved to have done that better <laughs> but like that's just said you know we've we've learned a lot but we can't take full credit for having sort of a vision to produce something like that with that kind of look, because although it hadn't really been, I don't think it's still been done here really no, in the I, UK. I don't think it's done, been done here. It has been done in America. You know, one of your, I think you're possibly your first guest, and we've been lucky enough to have him on our podcast as well, Donnie Vincent, mm -hmm. you know, with his films that he's done and with Brandon Shockey behind Uncharted. Indeed. I mean, we looked at that and we thought these guys are getting as close to perfect in terms of the look, the feel, the message. And we thought, well, we just need to we need to have that as our aiming point. Right. Yeah. And then we had to have a big assessment of our kit. That was our thing, you know, if like Byron said, no half measures. So it's you know, you can't you can't go out there with a three hundred pound camera and hope to get those amazing shots. On the other hand, because me and Byron we knew what we were taking on, we did we did the did this series, we had to carry all this stuff ourselves. There's there's no one else filming with us. And so the kit had to be small enough to carry but also be able to produce that amazing stuff. Right. So, you know, often your kit becomes more expensive because you start going down the route of carbon fiber, right. uh, camera crates, right. and, you know, you need very specific kit. And it rains a lot here in the UK. So you've got to be looking at, you know, weatherproofing your stuff in some way. All these, all these challenges we faced when we did the series and we learned every single episode something new. And I don't think we quite realized how tough it would actually be when we first looked to 
starting the series. Yeah. So I, I guess to answer your question, we were lucky in that we had a couple of projects before we started learn. our series where we really learned. I was fortunate enough to be kind of shown the basics of filming by uh, Charlie Jacoby, who I referenced earlier, right. and also David Wright, who is a very, very good uh, filmmaker. And he's kind of the filming cinematography brains behind the really nice stuff that's done in uh, Field Sports Channel. And they've kind of helped me. And uh, James Marchington's another name. None of these names might mean very much to people in, in America, but most people will kind of know them here in the UK. And through just picking people's brains and asking for advice, and, and also having and YouTube, YouTube, yeah. YouTube. <laughs> learning, learning from YouTube is one of the biggest keys to what we've been able to do. You know, you come across problems all the time, and sometimes they're not very common problems. But you guarantee someone probably else has right. had that problem yeah. around the world. They play yeah. with Edison. Yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, that's, I believe the this, this statistic is YouTube is the number two search engine in the world, right? And so odds are you're going to find a solution to a problem there, especially when, I mean, for God's sakes, especially when it comes to filming, right? If, if anywhere, it should be on YouTube. I, I, I used to get angry when someone hadn't put up a video of <laughs> problem of mine. So, so, so I need to start doing when I actually find the solution to it. Actually, you know, one of the biggest learning curves was the editing side because yeah. although oh, yeah. I had filmed yeah. before, that's, that that is that is really the difference maker, right? Yeah, it, it makes a huge difference. And we've recently moved over our editing platform. You won't have seen it yet on on our Into the Wilderness shows because that's still on the, on the old one. But uh, we've recently moved over, and what what a difference! And although I had filmed, I'd never edited anything prior to this. So in August last year. I said to Daryl, uh, you better learn how to edit because I don't know how to. <laughs> so I did. So I went, so on, did. I went on YouTube so I and learned. <laughs> Excellent. Well, moving on from from that, I mean, that, that's just phenomenal stuff. And, and again, I have immense respect for what you guys are producing. And, you know, I, I get a fair bit of inbound, uh, not requests, but, you know, these sort of, you know, hey, check out what we're doing. Uh, when I looked at at your guys' um, site and 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 the and the production, it was uh, it was a very pleasant surprise. So I'm I'm very happy that you did. One of the things I wanted to, to dig into was uh, let's call them the misconceptions about hunting in say the UK or or Scotland specifically. Uh, you know, I, I, it, here in North America, there's this fairly significant debate around private land versus public land hunting and and what that entails and. You know, you hear about some of the requirements or, or regulations, I guess, around hunting in, in the UK and specifically in, in Scotland. And can, can you guys just explain some of that for, for our audience? Because I think a lot of people are very interested and, in, in, you know, we're Canadian based and obviously we have a, a, a pretty good audience in the US as well. There's a lot of people that have UK roots and I think by extension have a, as, as I do, a fascination with returning to those roots. And if that can be combined with some shooting and, and likely some, some scotch tasting, you know, how would you know what what is entailed with you know for for yourselves hunting as residents and then for non-residents with coming to uh well let, let's use scotland as a specific example yeah I mean, you, you you referenced your private land ownership in america that's actually something that really fascinates me but uh, that'll be maybe something for another discussion because it's it's kind of the reverse to what we have here whereas there's a lot of public land over you know, over the water here Pretty much everything's privately owned. There is some publicly owned national parks. You can't hunt on them. You can't. Well, you can hunt in some of the national park. You're not hunting through the national park. You're hunting through the private landowner who owns the land in the park. Um, oh, so we, we actually live right on the edge of the Cairn National Park. And it is a designated 
national park with all the restrictions for building and everything that is entailed in that. But within that, the land is actually some, some of it, not yeah, all of it, not all of it. Some yeah. of it's owned by public bodies. Right. Um, but there is certainly private land within, and the vast majority of land is is privately owned. So, but we've got a strange rule here, particularly in Scotland, where there is a right to roam. So anybody on their feet without a rifle, in fact, you can even be armed with a fishing rod, can <laughs> yeah. wander actually wherever you like, as wow. long as you don't cause damage. Wow. So whether that be a field or a mountain. Anyway, you could go through my back garden if you wanted. It doesn't matter. No, that gives people a huge amount of freedom and allows you to access places. For example, fishing is a good example here. We have thousands and thousands of hill locks. And a lot of these can be fished. You can fish 150 hill locks up in Sutherland for about 15 pounds a day, so $10 or whatever it is. Right. And for, to do that, you just wander. And you, you wander with basically with right to roam, and you, you go there. And you, you go fish these hill locks. And to be honest, if you fished them and you didn't buy a permit, no one would know. But you do it because it uh, all goes back into helping look after them. Of course. But with regard to hunting in, a, in particular, the way that it works is you basically approach the area. So it tends to be estates here is what we call them. So our one of our local estates is Dalhousie Estate and the particular ground up the Glen here where there's a lot of hunting is Invermark, which is about 55,000. Yeah, it's 55,000, yeah. yeah. So it's a fair size. It's a, it's, a, it's a big estate and they've got everything from grouse to red deer there. And you basically phone up the estate office, which is you can Google it and you'll find the name. And you say, you know, I would, I would like to go and shoot a stag. Do you have any spaces? And they'll say yes or no. And you pay the, the rate. And as a foreigner, you pay the same rate that we pay here. Wow. Uh, there, is, there is no difference. There is no different location. There's no, like, tagging system. There's not, the, you know, they'll have a, a, a quota for what they would like to take off the hill from that year because they count them every single year from helicopter. Right. Um, and to control the, the numbers. And that will be what, how many they sell that year for clients to come and hunt. Yeah. Wow. And that, so and the, it's, a, that, it's a that pretty simple system. Really. Sorry, Byron, that, that quote is not set by the, the government, though. That's set by the, by the estate, by the landowner. To some extent, generally speaking, there's no state in intervention. Every estate and owner of the hunting rights will work out what they need to, to shoot during the year so that they've got sustainable and healthy populations. There is a mechanism in place where if either, either an estate or the owner of the shooting permissions um, across an area of ground is not doing what they should be doing, then it is possible for Scottish Natural Heritage to step in and say, you need to cull so many deer this season because there's a problem, whether that be, say, overgrazing on uh, natural regeneration or whether that's road accidents or any number of reasons. It doesn't happen very often right. because it's, it's in the greater interest of the people who look after the, the shooting and the hunting to make sure that they're on top of it because they want healthy populations. They don't want to cause a problem. The last thing that you want is to have outside inter intervention forcing you to do something that you might not necessarily want to do. So th there's a good relationship there, and it's very mm -hmm. rare that you hear of any issues. Right. We also have hunting on the low ground as well, on farms and so on that you can, you can hunt on. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of works the same. You know, they might not necessarily be estates, but they might just be the farm owners. Yeah. So generally speaking here, if you own a farm, 
you will probably have the the hunting rights will go with the farm. Not always. Some of them are part of estates, but you might have the, the hunting rights there, in which case it is, is up to them to either use those hunting rights for themselves or I've got a couple of farms that uh, that we hunt on and the, the farmers are friends of mine and I just have you know free reign to do what I want really right and uh, we just manage the deer I have done for a lot of years uh, as we feel fit right and and as far as whether it would be on the farms or on the estates is is that a situation where well, I think I know the answer to this based on what you said about you know, the system relative to yourselves hunting an estate or, or a non-resident. Do you need to have a like a, a, an estate manager or stalker or gamekeeper along with you on, on these estates? It's, it, from the filming, it doesn't look like you do, but would that be different for a non-resident, like a, a non-UK resident? I wouldn't say that the, the reason for it is specifically the fact it would be a non-UK resident. You'll find that the vast majority of estates, because that's you know it's it's run and that's obviously part of their kind of business model model of for managing the estates. They want to make sure, well, firstly that you don't get lost, and you know, <laughs> but secondly that you're shooting the right animals. It's a, a big thing on most of most of these estates where they're very carefully selecting the animals that are being shot. Right. And you'll find actually that although there are places that you can go to, if you're only interested, I only want to shoot you know, a really big stag, I only want to shoot 14 points or whatever it is, there are places you can go to for that. But equally, there are a lot of states, especially the ones around us, where if you say to them, I want to go and shoot a trophy animal, they'll say, I'm sorry, sir, we don't shoot trophies specifically. Right. Uh, when you when you come out stalking, we will find the right animal to shoot. It'll be a nice representative animal, but... It's not going to necessarily. You might get lucky, and they might find a you know a really good old animal that happens to carry a big head that they want to shoot. But you might not. Of course, you don't have to pull the trigger, so you won't have the the, the trophy fee. But they won't always guarantee that they'll get you into something particularly big. And there's a number. We've had this discussion actually on our podcast. Sorry, before. Uh, with he head stalkers on estates, and they, they, uh, so, I mean, Bruce, so, yeah, Bruce said, said that if someone yeah. asked him, he wouldn't actually let them come and shoot. Wow. If they asked for a trophy. Yeah. Wow. That's phenomenal. Well, and you know what's so interesting about them? What I find so fascinating about that system is, I mean, well, number one, it's just yet another incredible example of how misconstrued the the commitment to wildlife and you know for lack of a better way to put it the love of wildlife is for those that that hunt or manage right it's that i was listening to joe rogan the other day and he was saying how people have a really hard time getting their heads wrapped around the fact that those that hunt often have a far deeper respect and he, to use his term love for animals that those who profess to love animals but don't hunt just can't understand right and so this is just a, a really, really interesting and, and good example of, of how that is globally, of course, the case, which, which you know, the three of us know, but you know, I think a lot of non-hunters, and I don't even mean anti-hunters, but I think a lot of non-hunters just don't appreciate the efforts put into wildlife management. And, you know, you, you talked about that being one of your first films, of course. But the the next part of that is, you know, there's a there's a deep, 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 deep heritage of, of hunting, you know, not just in the UK, but, you know, obviously we're talking about Scotland specifically here. And yet in the podcast with Josh James, uh, your podcast, you referenced the, the, the lack of appetite within the UK for, for hunting and, and by extension hunting media. 
So I, I just wanted to get into that a little bit with you guys. What What is the, I guess, the market, for lack of a better way to put it, like the media space like there in the UK relative to to hunting media and, and this this proverbial appetite for this content? Because, you know, we're, we're obviously very North American centric. And I mean, within the hunting industry, very North American centric. And we don't generally look outwardly very well, except for negative examples, right? Cecil, the cheerleader in the giraffe and all that sort of sort of junk, right? So I just wanted to hear a non-North American perspective about that, that aspect of the industry. I'd say it's pretty well reflected here. I'm trying to think whether I feel that it's more or less than uh, not being in this in America or not having not having visited it uh, anywhere the, the, the states or in Canada. I don't know what the, the feeling would be there, but certainly here there is a generally negative perception with regard to hunting. And if we look at Scotland in particular. I think that a lot of that is to do with a bit of a class war as well. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, in particular reference to grouse shooting, which we talked about earlier. It tended to be in the past that the only people who could really afford to shoot grouse, because it's quite it's a very expensive bird to shoot, it costs you, if you want to go shoot grouse, um, driven grouse, it's going to cost about, call it 200 pounds a brace. I don't know what that converts to, to dollars, maybe 200 and seventy dollars a brace to go and shoot driven grouse and so sorry byron a brace is two grouse yes two yeah, grouse right, yeah. right. um so, you know so driven day might be 200 brace 300 brace 400 brace even depending on where you're where you're shooting so you can do the numbers on that it soon it soon i mean adds up. i mean for an example the the place that isn't too far away from us for the lodge and the whole grouse shooting experience you're looking at seventy five thousand pounds a week yeah. So you can wow. you can see that you do need money. <laughs> yeah. And that I thought sheep were expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and these are just fluffy little these are, birds. I, just little say, bird. I can go oh. shoot a shoot a grouse for a couple of cents. Yeah. <laughs> but I think you know that kind of general perception of it unfortunately has damaged shooting in the UK and Scotland. Interesting. Because of this kind of class war, class divide. You know, you have to be, you have to be, it's only rich uh, snobs uh, who speak particularly posh who can go and, uh, you know, enjoy the grouse more and they're managing it for the, for their benefit. And, you know, they're, they're rich people. Why should they have all this land? And so in, in a way, that particular aspect of, sh of shooting here, uh, hunting rather, I should say, has a quite a negative kind of tone about it, but it actually has very little to do with the killing of grouse. Deer stalking is a, almost a completely different discussion. When you're talking about deer stalking or any kind of other hunting, we probably have the same issues that you have over there, which are either happening in America or like over in Africa with Cecil the Lion, gets imparted upon you because you happen to be a hunter and something else has happened somewhere else. And aren't you disgusting because, you know, you're a hunter and, and if you're you a hunter, you're a trophy hunter. <laughs> so it's kind of, we have these two dynamics here with the, the sort of the big driven hunting on the big estates have this negative connotations about them. Like I say, largely not as a result of actually killing anything, although that's how it's dressed up. Yeah. That's how the anti-hunting organization, League Against Cruel Sports, kind of attacked quite a lot by one of our bird organizations, the RSPB. That's how they dress up their attacks. To some extent, it's because they just don't want to see hunting in any shape or form, but the kind of government slant on it 
is actually because they just don't want people owning lots of land, even though they spend a lot of money on it and manage it very well. On on the whole, the the media towards hunting is definitely negative. Not not in the the hunting favor at all. But well, we we see that repeatedly, and I'm sure it's exactly the same over with you. Whenever you see some story reference, the the mix up between hunting and poaching as a term is continually it continually grays the lines and then you get a something like South of the Line, which we seem to seems to pitch up in every second podcast we talk about, which opens up a whole a whole other dimension as to what should and shouldn't be done and what the greater or lesser benefits of hunting are around the world. I would say that, you know, here certainly even over the last six to twelve months it has been a bit better, and I think it has that, been yeah. yeah there has been a concerted effort to tell the positive stories, but not in a forceful kind of way, just basically providing the information right. fact yeah, yeah. yeah and the fact uh, a bit like the the films that we first started to produce for the the Moulin groups that came, and the the whole purpose of these Moulin groups were to basically be a front to all these privately owned estates and say, you know, we're not putting walls up, come and look inside and they're putting up pictures and they're doing film content. So we're showing people the the life of a gamekeeper, for example, and showing them what they go through, how they look after the animals and why they do it. Mm-hmm. The thing is, they're not, they're not denying and we would never deny as hunters that we enjoy doing it and that we're not doing it because we like to hunt. But the massive spin-off benefit behind it is what has never really, is that information has never really been put forward clearly in a kind of open way. And, you know, we were, we were actually interviewing a friend of mine a while back, a few months ago, and he said, and I totally agree with him, that it's not necessarily people's fault that they disagree with what you do if they haven't had the opportunity to learn of course and the fact that they are maybe ignorant it's not either there is not their fault either because you know have we provided them with the information to make the best decisions and i would suggest that the answer to that in most circumstances is probably not it is not helped by a biased media so it makes it even more difficult for us to get that information in front of people but we need to keep trying and it is working we can see uh, inroads that are certainly being made here uh, as Daryl said, with the Merlin groups and various other things, I think you know people like Donnie Vincent and um, Uncharted uh, with Jim Shockey. I think that is making a massive difference. And then you've got the kind of stand-up characters that are becoming really well known, like you know, Jim's daughter Eva. I see her on Fox News and she's talking about, and that is in a much more sort of public domain. And we need to see more of that. I would hazard the answer is we have unequivocally not provided that information for for people to get uh, another viewpoint against the biased media right and and i don't I, I don't intend that to sound combative although it, we've used you know some martial terms here when, when referencing this whole media discussion but that is our responsibility and our obligation as 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 hunters and, and as outdoors people and wildlife managers um be that explicitly i.e working in wildlife projects or organizations or associations or on estates or in a third-party manner when you're a member of a variety of of organizations as a just an annual member or something like that right and that is our that is to me at least and 
my audience has heard me say this numerous times, and I will probably say it another hundred times, but I, I do deeply and strongly feel that it is our responsibility in the 21st century to tell more of the story behind hunting. And that's why the podcast is called beyond the kill.fm. It's not, I go out and kill shit. It's I'm a hunter and this is, this is why, and these are the various aspects to hunting. And, you know, look at the end of the day, we are going out there to, to kill something, but that is also something that to me is, is very distinctly human, right? We have done that for a very, very long time. And we would not be sitting here talking over podcast microphones if it was not for our ability to hunt and procure meat and, and evolve and grow biologically, right? And so this is something that is very true to the human story, but we have done a very poor job of, of telling that story, specifically the, the, the evolutionary or biological or ancestral, depending on what terminology you want to use, story, but also the, the modern story of, of all the aspects of hunting that are, are so important, right? And and that's why, you know, I, I'm so effusive about the work you guys are doing. And of course, what Donnie has done, the crew down here in Montana uh, at Seacat Creative, and there are, there are more and more production houses popping up and photographers popping up that are telling the story through imagery, through film, through the written word, uh, through podcasts that I think tells the kind of story that we need to tell. And that's, that's not because the other stuff is wrong. I mean, that that's real. I mean, the other things you see out there about hunting are real. I mean, people go out and shoot lions, people go out and shoot elephants, and some people are never going to like that. But if we do a, a good job of explaining what goes into that. Like I, I would challenge anyone that has ever just to use elephants as a very weird example here, but I would challenge anyone that has anything against African hunting to read one of Capstick's books, right? Like death in the long grass and see what they think about Africa. Right. Or the woman from who was from Zimbabwe, actually, who uh, Stephen Rinella referenced in an article that was in the New York, New York times about, you know, people in lion, people in Zimbabwe don't cry for lions. And she gave yeah, very, 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 very good and very eye-opening reasons for that, right? And we just need to do more of that and do our, our, our best efforts or put our best efforts into sharing more of that information because we are, I won't say fighting, but up against a media that has a, has a slant and has a bias. They are not uh, unafraid to use terminology that has a negative connotation to it, right? And they do it. They do it all the time. Yeah. And having a name for your podcast, Beyond the Kill, brilliant name, by the way, is uh, it encapsulates everything which we should be thinking about. And we we come up against against this from time to time from hunters. <laughs> yeah, we do. People, unfortunately, <laughs> what am I? What am I about? To you're you're going to talk about the kill shot. Yeah, oh, and well, no, I'm not from, really hunting. Yeah, yeah. I just don't understand it. We. I don't understand it from hunters either. We we have comments now and then, mostly positive, and we welcome people commenting our stuff, even giving us suggestions, because that's how we learn. You can't you can't just stay where you are. You got to keep progressing. So people telling us maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that. You know, if it's a good idea, then we'll take it on board. Of course we will. But when you have s people saying, "Oh, great show," but I wish you were doing more hunting, you're like, "Hang on a minute." We are like we're telling a whole story like that is our whole story. We're not we are not there just to show you the kill shot. I mean, and we have talked about this so many times about the kill shots. And I think it, you were just saying that explaining to people. So if you've got a video that his kill shot after kill shot after kill shot with a very poor explanation, what is that sending to everyone else in the world? Yeah. What is that, what is, and, what is that and, saying? And it's the same with pictures on social media. If you have uh, an example in this, this country, um, foxes. If you have a fox and you have blown its brains out, don't put it on social media. 
Like, what? Where's where's the need? But for some reason, people like to put it on there. Yeah, <laughs> we we get quite disappointed when we see. We look at the statistics on our films, uh, as anybody can who has uh, any films on YouTube. And it's kind of disappointing to see the massive spike that you get around a kill shot. Where people have gone back and rewatched it, or people have skipped forward just to watch the kill, the kill shot. shot. So, we, yeah, with that, the guy that Daryl's referencing, we've had two comments like that, where basically the suggestion was you should have more hunting. Less, of, less le, le, basically, less, less, story, less of me killing. and Byron. And more hunting. That's, that was his suggestion. We're like, so what you're saying is just get rid of us yeah. and we'll just set up the cap, do the shot, end the show, done. Yeah, just just do a kill reel, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, well, that, that was my comment to it. I was probably a little bit more aggressive than I should have been, but. Well, no, it, it was realistic because he, if he actually had a valid argument, it would have been good because he gave us an example of what we should have been doing. And the examples he gave us were just kill shot after kill shot. Yeah, they were show reels of kill shots. I said, look, if you want to watch this stuff, there's loads of it on YouTube. You know, crack on, you go watch it. I said, but the, the thing is that this, we never dress this up as something that is specifically for hunters. It is called Into the Wilderness, after all. It's not right. called, right. Yeah, don't come me, we're hunting. It, it is supposed to be a lot more than that. And that is the reason that we made them because it is. It has to be more than that. And it is, you know, for the vast majority of people who hunt, it is more than that. It's the journey there. It's the smells. It's the scenes. It's the sights. It's the people you meet. It's the culture. It's not just about taking your gun out, uh, walking 100 meters and pulling the trigger and killing something. Because if it was that, very few people would do it. Well, uh, I, I, you might do it something in the freezer, but that would be the sum total of it. Absolutely. And the thing that I, I want to make clear, because I, I have... I have discuss this a few times on the podcast with a variety of people. I think some people query whether it comes from a guilt or even a softness that there isn't this emphasis on, on killing. And like I've said this a few podcasts back, I'll use a very specific example that will, will, will rub a lot of even current hunters the wrong way. Like I, I want to kill a grizzly bear. I'm very open about that fact and I will eat that meat. There's no question I will eat that meat or at least attempt to eat that meat and, and hope it is, it is uh, edible. I have no reason to believe otherwise from many people I know who have hunted and killed grizzly bears. So I, I'm not averse to killing and I go out to hunt to kill. But the reason I, I'm so passionate about this subject where we're digging in on here is to to emphasize the kill, you know, to produce a kill reel or grip and grin shots, you know, left, right, and center diminishes the whole experience to a point that is is almost worthless, right? Like it's it is not why we do it. It's a, a part of why we do it is whether it's to put meat in the freezer or to go out and experience wild places and wild things and and see just incredible, incredible events in nature. But the to show the kill reel to emphasize the part of the kill only, right? I mean to to only emphasize that is just a, a complete disservice to the effort and the experience, right? And the totality of it is something that is, you know, it is almost beyond beyond words and beyond description to someone who hasn't experienced it, right? But but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to share and tell and show as much of the experience as possible, right? It's I would say to those that that want to see more of the kill reel, A, unsubscribe from the podcast because we're not going to talk much about it. My podcast, that is not necessarily the Byron and Daryl's. Yeah, we would agree. And as you said, there's there's a lot of stuff out there that, that can satisfy that that need and scratch that itch. And my contention is we need more of, of what you guys are producing and people like Donnie are producing and the CCAT crew and Branlin and, and Jim Shockey to an extent, especially with Uncharted, all that stuff. We, we, we do 
need more of it. And I'm not saying we need to replace the other stuff. Maybe, maybe in fact, I would say that, but we definitely need more of a total experience emphasis on this thing that we, you know, <laughs> so simplistically term as hunting, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's such a, a loaded term because it comes with, because of the media slant, a certain, certain connotation to it. And it's, it's almost a, a sad fact because there's just so much to it that is not encapsulated by that word. There is. And, and uh, I would kind of agree and disagree in, in the same, t in the same way, because I think that the word hunting has kind of been, it's been a abused not by not by hunters but it's been abused in the media as to what it means absolutely yeah so it carries with it today a lot of negative connotations because the only thing that people who are, are not involved in the kind of day-to-day -day hunting or the countryside or out in the wilderness associate with it is that picture of a cheerleader lying down beside the neck of a giraffe is the dentist beside Cecil the line you know it is a dead elephant and what they what they fail to to realize or stand back and look at themselves is think about their daily lives. Now, I'm not suggesting for one second that everybody should uh, go out and hunt because for a start, it means that it would be a lot more difficult to find hunting. <laughs> Although I would encourage everybody to anybody who wanted to try it absolutely yeah go and do it go and go and do it because I tell you what you're going to find a totally different you and you're going to understand your place in the world and the world around you in a way that you didn't think was possible. And, you know, we, I tell you, the place that you're going to find it is maybe not even necessarily actually out looking at the animals. It's going to be around the campfire at night while you're reflecting on what you've done during the day. But there's a lot of people who never really think about their daily lives. So you take your average person on the street who spends their life in the city, who maybe has something against hunters because they kill. Let's ignore the trophy hunting question because that's something which I think has to be defended in a slightly different way. But, you know, the, and the, I'm not the first person to say this. This, this gets said by, by plenty of people, and I'm probably stealing um, examples from people who speak far more articulately than I do. But, you know, they're wearing their leather shoes. They're wearing the leather belt, they're drinking their milk. They're quite happily tucking to their chicken Kievs at night from Tesco or whatever the, your, your local supermarket is. Walmart, yeah, if you're over in, the, uh, over in America. Without even giving the animal that's given its life one second thought. Some people might not even realize exactly what kind of leather their shoes are made from. And yet if you're a hunter, especially if you're eating the meat of something that you've killed, and I'm not I'm also not suggesting that we should only be eating meat that we've hunted because I don't think that's viable in the modern world. But if you are doing that, not only have you you've given the utmost dedication to putting that food in your mouth, you have had the utmost respect to do it yourself. And there's not everybody can do that. Not everybody is prepared to take life to save a life. And that's essentially what you're doing. If you're a meat eater, you are taking life to save a life and that life is yours because you're eating. You have to eat to sustain. Right. Well, and, and I mean, in this most simplest way, what you just described was well, some number one, very well put about not thinking about their own lives and all those aspects of this, this great debate, but to take a life to save a life in one word is nature. People don't mm. I mean, because we are insulated from nature in, in, in large cities and, and urban environments, I've actually kind of changed my tune a bit on this because I can actually start to sympathize almost with people that they, they, they just don't know, right? They, they don't understand. You know, what was, was years ago, I remember hearing a, a stat on the news about a survey done about with children and 
grade school and they asked them where, where meat came from and they said the grocery store. And it's stuff like that that is, I mean, that's just, it's just the reality of modern life. But people, you're right, Byron, don't, don't think. And there's few things that irritate me as much as those that don't take a second to step back and think critically about the opinions they, they may hold. And, and today's, you know, fire hose of social media, it's very easy to form an opinion based on 140 characters, right? And so people need to, people need to think more deeply. There's no question. They need to think more broadly, think more critically. But at the same time, you know, I, I used to be very, very, very defensive about this as like, well, you're wearing leather shoes or a leather belt. And, you know, this, it, it is a challenge. It's a challenge for a person who, who hasn't grown up in any sort of, you know, out, outdoors experience, you know, family or background to, to really understand it. And when you're, when your outdoors experience is, you know, trouncing into the woods or the mountains with, you know, a couple hundred dollars gear of petroleum-based products on your back and you think you're an environmentalist, well, there's a different, there's a different way to, to interact with nature. Right. And if you, and when you put, as, as Donnie says, right, I think it's in the, um, uh, who we are little short, the, you know, when you put yourself in, in wild places, you see wild things, right? And, and you know, nature is, is mean and it's cruel, and, but that is the natural world, right? Is every day, you know, a life is taken to save another life, right? And, and, and I mean, in, in the animal kingdom, I don't mean even for ourselves, right? And this idea that we're somehow above that is, I don't know, I, I, just, I just certainly don't agree with, with that, that mentality. And I'm not suggesting either that we're saints. As if you're a hunter, suddenly you become a saint. Absolutely not. Oh, no, <laughs> and that is all to say we agree with all people who class themselves hunters because I absolutely do not. And there are a lot of things that go on within the hunting world, which I totally disagree with or disagree with the ethics behind the man or woman. But that is not to say that hunting is not incredibly important for the sustainable management of the wildlife on our planet. And that is the sort of the key aspect, that and, and the food aspect is what I think we should be focusing on. I've said it before, but you know, you can disagree with the ethics of, of the person pulling the trigger because you've no idea really, uh, unless they tell you, what their motivation is for actually pulling the trigger. But you can't disagree, and there are plenty of examples, and it would be an entire other podcast to go into it possibly <laughs> about the examples of where hunting as a management practice is protecting and saving wildlife around the world. And it seems like a really strange concept to people who are not involved in it, that in order to save a species, you've got to hunt a species. But I, I can tell you now it works and has worked for a very, very long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're getting into time here and you're right, Byron, the spinoff subjects here would require whole other podcasts and probably a good handful of them. So we may just have to uh, reconvene in the near future so we can cover all, so we can so solve the world's problems, right? I mean, well, yeah, create, create world peace, solve the conservation issues globally. Yeah, well, let's fix the world as well. Yeah. We've got our own over here yeah, right now we, too. We, got, we got we got problems here so <laughs> yeah no and, and i completely i completely agree sorry byron or sorry daryl go ahead i was just gonna say i want i just wanted to touch on people going i think we were talking about about five ten minutes ago you know even though people might be educated or even go into the countryside or go into the hills and so on that doesn't mean they're necessarily looking around them and oh, great point. seeing what's there because a prime example is when we filmed the first episode on the Isle of Skye. It was a six-hour drag from the top of the hill down to the bottom because we had all of the camera equipment as well, and we were kind of doing it in stages. There's, As you get towards the bottom of the, the hill, there's actually um, a walker's track. Let's call it a mountain. It sounds more impressive. Yeah, it a, was mountain. a mountain. Well, it is a mountain. It's <laughs> called the Cooler Mountain. Yeah. 
Uh, they, are, they are big mountains, actually. And uh, as we're halfway down, there is a gentleman sitting on a rock, and he's taking some pictures, and he has his headphones in, and we dragged the stag probably about 20 meters away from him, and we disappeared down the hill, and he never knew we were even there. He, he just was, he was just so fixated in what he was doing at that moment in time, headphones in, listening to music, that he just... I, I don't know. I don't know. We had ex- on the like the day before that, we were again stalking there, and on the one side of the mountains, there's a like a trail that people take up to go and uh, bag one of the Munros up there. And we were watching the stag; it was holding half a dozen hinds or so, and he was roaring every so often. And we watched this couple walking up a footpath, and they must have walked about fifty meters below the stag and hinds that was lying down. And they, once they passed it a bit, he stood up and gave a roar. And then we were we were watching them with the binos, and they stood around and had a look at them. But you know, if you go up there with the intention of hunting, you look at the place around you, the landscape and the animals in a very very different way. And it's not a, and I don't mean that in a we want to kill everything way, but you are looking at it as part of the landscape as an animal that belongs there, as opposed to someone that's just visiting. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of people that go to these places, I'm sure that they appreciate it. And they're obviously taking something important from it, but they're probably not taking as much as they could. No, and I, and that's incredibly well put and great example, Daryl, because that is, I don't know how many different specific examples I've heard of just that as a person walking past something that they didn't see because they were not as I I'm, I'm stealing this from someone I'm sure, but I like to reference it as immersing themselves truly in, in the landscape, right? There's no question that it's a whole other connection and level of sensory awareness. There's uh, yeah, that's that, that alone is probably one of the most important experiences a person could go through, whether they just came on the hunt and, and just was there as a, as a person to, to, to act as a mule or, or to, to just go on that experience. They don't even have to pull the trigger, but to, to go through that experience of assessing everything around you in an entirely different way, I think would be an immense, immense, uh, learning opportunity for many, many, many people. Um, yeah. Really would. I I wish that more hunters and uh, hunting organizations would make available to people who are not not in this world, not not part of the sort of hunting fraternity, give them the opportunity to take take examples like you've just given and actually go and say, look, you you know what, you you don't have to hunt. We just want to show you what we do. And there's a little bit of that going on now here. Uh, we're not not us specifically, but uh, the various different organizations, they are inviting politicians and they are inviting people and they're opening their doors and they're saying, you know, come with us, come and experience it. You don't have to like it. We don't even want you necessarily, you know, to want to actually do the act yourself, but come and see what it's all about. And little bit by little, that will make a difference in the long term. And I, I'm sure that in most circumstances, people will feel better about their understanding for experiencing it as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Okay, gentlemen. Well, I've I've kept you plenty of time here. Let's wrap it up with the proverbial rapid fire uh, round of questions. So as I always say, your answers do not need to be rapid or short. The questions will be, and you can either answer collaboratively or um, respectively, depending on on the differences in your answers. The go-to question I ask virtually everyone is, what would be the top of your bucket list for a, uh, I'll call it a hunt, but as we as we know, that would be uh, as much an experience as a hunt. So what, what would be the tops of your list? Fire, Daryl. You know what? I want to hunt a goat. I've been wanting to hunt a goat. Are you talking about over in America? 
Yeah, a wild yeah, goat. A wild goat. I want to hunt a wild goat. That's like like a, Daryl, a Rocky Mountain goat. Or, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So that I think that would actually be the the top. Yeah, one one of the top for me. Yeah, definitely. For me, that might be a strange one for people. But yeah. No, 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 no. I, I don't. I mean, people listening to this, I would be astounded if they thought that was strange. I mean, it's the the proverbial poor man's sheep, right? As as people unfortunately call it. I have immense respect for goats and. They are, without a doubt, one of the harder creatures to hunt from the standpoint of the landscape you will need to find yourself in to get one. And along with that is go to America at the same time. Because I, I would, we, uh, I would uh, we, sorry, correct you, Daryl, and say you would want to go to Canada for a goat hunt. Well, specifically. Go to Canada uh, at the same time. <laughs> Byron. For me, although I have actually hunted them, but not with me being the... Uh, the primary hunter, I've, I've done it more in a sort of stalker. I don't, I don't like to call myself a professional hunter because that can only be claimed by those people who are actually trained as a professional hunter. But I have spent time hunting buffalo where there's been clients. However, I've never had the chance to hunt one specifically myself. So I would like to hunt a buffalo, but in a very particular area, either free roaming in, in Zambia, Mozambique, or maybe in the sort of Timbavati area and with one of my friends from over there as well. Daryl, I'm very lucky in that I can I can hunt Rocky Mountain goats over the counter. I actually just found out the other day, yesterday, excuse me, that I I, I drew a, a limited entry tag for a phenomenal goat area. So, I have a we in BC have a very uh, an embarrassment of riches, as it were, around mountain species hunting. But but Byron Cape Buff are. Uh, very 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 high on 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 my on my list for and i honestly can't even really describe why they would fall into the same class as a as a grizzly bear for me that i can't really i can't say there's one reason why it's just the, the total experience would be just i think mind-boggling so uh i'm with both of you on that uh <laughs> for different reasons so okay a regionally specific one your top scotch recommendation that we might not uh, find so you're not allowed to say glenfiddich or anything along those lines right any of those well incidentally i've actually done quite a bit of tasting because i'm actually getting married later this year oh and so congratulations I've had, to, I've had thank you i've had to pick and we were talking about the fetter cairn whiskey before we came on the podcast and that is actually what we're having for one of the main whiskies so yeah fetter cairn and it's regional to here and it's a very light smooth whiskey either that or dalwini that's also a very smooth one and it's got a little honey honey taste to it as well i tried dalwini for the first time probably a year ago and i was very pleasantly surprised how how do you uh, spell the the first one daryl (laughs) <laughs> now you're asking. <laughs> you know what? We'll tell you how to spell it. I was going to have a look. Well, I tell you. you know, uh, pull up a bottle uh, right now? Yeah. I, there is one downstairs, is but I, I'm not going to go and get it. He's I'm going to Google, Google it for you. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I tell you, rather embarrassingly, being a born Scot, that I can't drink Scottish whiskey. Oh, wow. And it's a little bit to do, well, no, not just Scottish whiskey, any whiskey. And I was going to say it has a little bit to do, but that's rubbish. It has everything to do with my 21st 100% birthday. 100% to do with his 21st and, birthday. And uh, a bottle of Bowmore, <laughs> uh, which was particularly good when I drank it, but it wasn't particularly good when it came up. So I can't drink whiskey anymore. <laughs> okay, so it is. Uh, it's, oh no, my, my phone. It is F-E-T-T-E-R-C-A-I-R-N. Fetter Cairn. I would have guessed that, but okay, good. Yeah. I didn't want to make a mistake. I didn't want to make a you know. mistake either. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, excellent. All right. If you could hunt with one historical figure, and if you can go as far back as you want, who would that be? I'm going to go with Jim Corbett. Mm, great choice. Daryl's thinking. He's trying no, to rack his brains. Well, well I'm not racking my brains because the thing is, 
I was trying to think of historical figures, but I can't think of one because I just want to hunt with one of our relatives that isn't a historical figure, but we have absolutely phenomenal pictures of Uncle Ted. <laughs> We've got amazing pictures of our family hunting in Africa who are no longer with us because it was so long well, ago. Uncle Ted fortunately is. Well, Uncle Ted is, yeah. but yeah, I would like to hunt with one of our, our relatives. But That's a the, great answer. Great yeah. answer. No, that, that's to- a very respectable answer. Okay. Ted was a professional crocodile hunter. So, yeah, <laughs> it would have been amazing to spend some time with him. Oh, man. Just a side note is this, this, this history of Africa, especially as it pertains to, to hunting, which, I mean, is you can't really separate from the history of Africa, period. It's just incredible. Like, it boggles my mind. Everything I've read about those, I don't know what time period I would need to reference there because I'm, I'm not as well versed in it as I as I should be, but everything from a time gone by about Africa is just incredible, incredible stuff. It, uh, so I can, I can understand that. Okay. Last one is, and I always say you can answer this one of two ways, either your favorite book or the book you have gifted the most. Mm. Well, I mean, this kind of ties to my previous answer with wanting to hunt with Jim Corbett is that my girlfriend very kindly bought me a set of Corbett's books which was reprinted by Rigby, Rigby Rifles here in London. Right. And uh, the profits from those books was actually given to the Jim Corbett National Park in India to help fight anti-poaching. So a a spin-off of that. I love those books. And I just had this. I actually have two copies of them now because I have this limited edition set as well. But those books are absolutely incredible. And if you ever want to fall in love with a place and and a time and and a person that speaks about hunting in a way that few others ever have or as eloquently than you've got to read Jim Corbett. And is, is there a specific one within his works? I, I've read Maneaters of, I, I'm, I'm never sure if I, if I say it correctly, is it Kumayan? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, I mean, that one in particular is is exceptionally good. Oh, yeah. Daryl? For me, it's not actually a hunting book at all. Uh, a lot of my friends I've actually given this to aren't, aren't hunters, and it's it's actually a, a Navy diving book called uh, Frog Tales, and it was about a diver. He's still with us, actually. He comes to uh, the, the school that you get taught, and you can meet him. And it, incredible story about the Falklands, mainly about the, the Falklands War right. and what those guys were up to there and then his, uh, his life afterwards. But, yeah. Sorry, Adriel, I should have prefaced it with saying that it doesn't have to be a hunting book at all. Not a hunting book, but I have given three copies of this to people now. So it's definitely a book I I would give to people. (laughs) That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Okay, gentlemen, from my perspective, that would be a wrap. Last but not least, of course, where can people find out about the Pace Brothers, Into the Wilderness, Pace Productions, the whole lot? The easy thing to do is just go onto Google and put in thepacebrothers.com. And you will find our podcast and you will find all of our series uploaded there. It's all free and available on YouTube. If anyone happens to be particularly interested in the other production documentary type stuff we're doing, then just look at paceproductionsuk.com. Excellent. And I will uh, add in there that those of you listening most certainly should check it out. You will wax philosophical after watching a single episode or any one episode of Into the Wilderness because it's uh, incredibly well shot, as I as I said before. And for those of us with any Scottish ancestry, it really hits home as far as the landscapes and, and the overall experience. So I, I will include those links in the show notes as well. But do take a moment to check uh, these guys out on, on YouTube. All the music is written by someone local. Oh yes, it is. Yeah. I, that, actually, no. I'm glad you mentioned that, Joe, because I like I love the music you guys have in there. I get 
I would probably not even have, you know, if I've watched a few of the episodes, I just play some of that music in the background because it's just, it's phenomenal. It's really well done. Well, just since Daryl's mentioned it, the, most of it's written by Andy Shanks, who is the father of a very good uh, old friend of mine. And we've recently, in episode three, which was just out last week, there's a, a band which also came from our school, yeah. Dallahan, uh, who are exceptionally good as well. So those are the two names you want to check so out. So all, like all local Scottish yep. Scottish guys and uh, girls doing the, the music for us, which is nice. Absolutely phenomenal. Well, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck with, with everything. And I'm sure we will chat more off air in the very near future. Adam, thank you very much for inviting us on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. For show notes and links, go to journalofmountainhunting.com and click on the podcast tab. BeyondTheKill.fm is also brought to you by Sitka. At Sitka, gear is engineered to be an extension of the outdoor experience, not simply a barrier between you and the environment. As you all know, I've been a loyal and vocal supporter of First Light for a couple of seasons now, and, and nothing's changed there. But what I've not talked about much is the fact that I often run a mix kit with insulation piece from one company, lightweight soft shell from another, and and that last one specifically is where I came to be a, a devout believer in, in the Sitka system, especially as it relates to the 90% jacket. I've had that in my pack for a couple of seasons, and as the name suggests, and in pretty much everything but the worst conditions, it is the jacket I find myself reaching for. You can check out the 90% jacket and the rest of the 2016 big game lineup, including some exciting new additions to the line this year at SitkaGear.com, or try them on for yourself at your local Sitka dealer. On the next episode, I'm joined by Joseph Peter, New Zealand guide outfitter and owner of Hard Yards Hunting New Zealand, one of the only truly free range and wilderness hunting outfits operating in New Zealand today. Joseph and I dig in on all things NZ as a longtime guide and, and now outfitter. And having come from a family of guide outfitters, Joseph has a pretty good grasp of the realities of hunting in New Zealand, which of course are very unique to that country. So we dig in on it all. We cover some of the history of uh, hunting in New Zealand, guide outfitting in New Zealand, some of the things to watch out for as a an international hunter and traveler to the country. Uh, and then of course we dig in on hunting some of the phenomenal species and Joseph's tips and tactics and insights on how best to approach it. It's a great episode and as usual with a Kiwi, we get an open and honest discussion about hunting in New Zealand. But until then, stay alpha and I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I uh, hope you've uh, learned something about me and Byron. And I hope you go and check out the Beyond the Kill FM podcast as well, because it's well worth checking out. Now, I promised you this week's prize, and this week's prize is Surefire Sonic Ear Defenders. And they're really nifty little things, actually. Me and Byron both own a pair ourselves, and they come with a cool little carry case and it's the kind of thing that you put in that your hunting jacket and you just leave there and then you don't have to worry about carrying ear defenders about we're going to put a picture of it up on our facebook page now all you have to do to do this is on the main post on our page when we post up the uh, the podcast you just 
put in a picture of yourself hunting this year, doing any anything that you've been doing up to hunting uh, and over the next two weeks, put up a picture and that's you enter the competition. You can also tag us in a picture on our Instagram page, which is pace underscore brothers. Join us again in one week's time where we're going to bring you our more news-based and some updates from the Scottish Association for Country Sports where Byron will also be there as well. We have some fantastic podcasts coming up over the next few months. We're going to be speaking to some awesome guests from Norway. You're also going to be hearing about our adventures. And we'll be also bringing out our next episode of Into the Wilderness. It's been slightly delayed because we have been away for over a month now. Also, if you check out thepacebrothers.com, our wilderness hunts, everything is up there now, and you can come join us hunting later this year. Three days of... Uh, wilderness experience so just check it out you'll see it on the tab wilderness hunt and you can uh, come and join us uh, hunting some deer in the, the scottish highlands thank you very much for listening don't forget this show is brought to you by the scottish association for country sports